Heather, I'd be broken if you died. I would be broken if you died too. I would throw myself on your coffin or ashes, whatever you choose to do. I'm right here. Welcome to Holy Spirits, the show where we're not going to heaven, but you might be. My name's Mike. I'm Tara. I'm Heather. And our Holy Spirit of the day is tequila. Yeah, girl. Woohoo. I've got a margarita. Uh, we have a weird concoction. We just do some shit together. It's kind of margarita-ish. It's like a witch's brew. Mm-hmm. But we also did a shot before. Yeah. We're feeling it. We've got the burn in our throat. The burn of the Lord. The burn of the angels. Absolutely. Our Facebook group is called Holy Spirits the Podcast. We are on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash holy underscore spirits. And now we are on Apple Podcasts. And our email address is holyspiritspodcast at gmail.com. And eventually I will shorten this spiel because it's getting too long now that there are so many ways to listen to us and to talk to us. (laughs) Today, we're taking things in kind of a different direction from the usual. Today, we're talking about a character who is only kind of in the Bible, and that's Alexander the Great. So I realized when I was researching Simon Peter that the Greek versus Hebrew traditions are a pretty big part of the cultural landscape when Jesus was alive. We talked about Pompey conquering Judea for Rome in the Pontius Pilate episode, but we haven't really talked about Greece and like the Greek aspect of things. And uh, Alexander the Great is basically the reason why the New Testament is in Greek. So he's pretty important and he kind of sets the stage for a lot of things that are true for specifically Jesus's life. So also, I just really like him. I like talking about him and I liked researching him. So we're going to kind of be self-indulgent in that way. Sounds great. So um, what do you guys know about Alejandro? I know he's a historical figure. Wonderful. Heather, what do you know? Yeah, that's about all I know as well, just aside from the little tidbits that you have talked about, but um, I'm excited to learn more about him. Clean slates. Okay. Yeah, with how much alcohol I have in my system already, I don't even remember what we've talked about in the previous episodes about him. So, I mean, you're really clean with me cleanest slate possible. I love it. Okay, so um, I'm going to start off by kind of setting the stage really fast because I feel like Alexander the Great doesn't pop out of nothing. So for a really long time, the Greeks are kind of doing their own thing while the Middle East is like the source of everything. So I kind of think of them, they're kind of like the New Jersey of the ancient world. They're small. They're kind of loud. They have their own distinct culture. Like you will never mistake someone from Jersey with someone from Nebraska. They're not like that important, but because, you know, New Jersey isn't New York or Texas or California. Like it's not a huge state with a big economy and lots of voters. Like New Jersey is New Jersey, but like it's still very much a a part of America. Like we, we talk about them and we think about them and blah, blah, blah. But they're just kind of peripheral. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, makes good sense. Yeah, definitely. So we start with Assyria and then Babylonia and Mesopotamia. Babylonia declines. There's kind of a long story about this King Nabonidus and he drops the ball and then bam, the Persians pop up. They're an upstart power and they take over. They are called the Achaemenid Persians because they claim to be descended from a man whose name is Achaemenes. And we call them the Achaemenid Persians because there are a bunch of different Persian empires that pop up. So we kind of need to be specific. 
Is this the Persian dude that's in the movie 300? Yes. And I'm going to talk about 300 quite a bit. Good call, Tara. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, but that's exactly what we're talking about. So before the Persians take over, like I said, the Babylonians are the ones in charge. I mentioned in the Babel episode, the ancient Israelites hated Babylonia because of the Babylonian captivity, which you remember is when the Babylonians conquered Judah. They took a bunch of nobles hostage. Mm -hmm. Do you remember me talking about that? Totally. Um, That's kind of the historical backdrop of the book of Daniel. Okay, well, (laughs) that's the historical backdrop of the book of Daniel. Obviously, I take everything you tell me and just lock it in a vault. Um, So anyway, from a biblical perspective, the ancient Israelites were like thrilled with the Persians because the Persians took down the Babylonians and the Babylonians were keeping the Israelites hostage. So they actually call Persian King Cyrus the Great, who is the first king of the Achaemenid Persian Empire, they call him God's anointed in the book of Isaiah. Like they love him. And of course, the stance is kind of that the Babylonians got what was coming to them. But so Persia swoops in, it takes over from Mesopotamia, and they're doing the big, innovative, like you can keep your gods in language shit. Like the stuff that no one has done before and that we know kind of works if you're trying to build a great big empire. The older powers were like horrible sadists and the Persians come in and they're not literally like the worst people you've ever met. They're not genocidal authoritarians. I listened to the Dan Carlin uh, podcast, Hardcore History, and he compares them to a greedy corporation. They're kind of like, like a mega Walmart. They have a bunch of string attached franchises, but they'll like let you do your own thing in theory. They just want to have power over you just in case. And you need to make sure that you pledge loyalty to them, but like they'll let you do your thing. So as long as you like shut up, then you get to be not killed. Right. It's like you can keep governing your people and you can keep your religion and you can keep your language. And when we declare war, you just need to make sure that you send us troops and ships. But like other than that, you can live your best life. Okay. Also, also maybe taxes, but whatever. Yeah. And Persia is kind of killing it too with like science and philosophy and other kind of highbrow fancy things, right? Remember, Greece is like Jersey and Persia is like Paris. It's this like, ah, like we are so happy to be stealing the wealth out of Africa, you know? <laughs> so then Persia uh, <laughs> extends into modern day Turkey. So that's right, right by Greece. And they're kind of looking over at that like, hmm, I could, I could own that. Like Greece has some potential and we could flip it. And yeah. so there's a, there's a series of conflicts called the Greco-Persian Wars where the Greeks are all getting together and they're like, fuck Persia. We don't want to deal with Persia. Persia is kind of encroaching on our zone. And um, so in that process, they kind of start to think of themselves more unified because before then the Greeks were their own city states. So it was Athens and Sparta and Corinth. And if you were like, what do you have in common with these people? They'd be like, I mean, they talk a language that's kind of like ours, but other than that, we're like our own thing. And I do want to note too, that there were a bunch of Greeks that were like kind of cool with Persia. Like they were like mom and pop shops that willingly sold to Walmart because they're like, listen, we're going to fail without having Walmart intervene or it'll be more profitable for us if we let Walmart intervene. So like, we're cool with it versus the other Greeks were like the mom and pop shops that were like, fuck Walmart, Walmart's drowning our business. And it's like, yeah, that's true too. We have the Greeks being kind of spread out and then they come together for the Greco-Persian war and kick the Persians out. And they're like, cool, maybe we're a little bit more of kind of our own thing. And then Athens and Sparta kind of go head to head for a little bit, trying to kind of decide which one of them is kind of the more boss bitch of Greece. 
That's called the Peloponnesian War. And Sparta wins, but then everyone is weakened. So what I'm saying is there are no Persians in Greece, but the Persians want to be in Greece. And all of the Greek states are really weak right now. And spoiler alert, most of Alexander's life is kind of centered around the competition between Greeks and Persians. Like that is a huge defining factor. And in a lot of ways, that's the difference between that, um, that rivalry between East and West kind of continues through the Middle Ages and it becomes Christianity versus Islam. And it becomes the US versus the USSR. Like these are kind of cosmic forces that we're still kind of dealing with, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Now that I've kind of sped through and thrown a bunch of information at you, what do you kind of think of how the world stage is set at this time? I mean, it just seems like there's a lot of people vying for power. You know, the world's in turmoil, very much like the movie 300. (laughs) If only there were giant elephants to ride. Oh, that would be so If cool. only. There are elephants in this story. And suddenly I'm way more interested. Keep going. So we're, okay, we're done with the boring stuff. Now we're t- going to talk about Alexander. Okay. Okay. So none of the contemporaneous sources survive. So the, those are the people who were with Alexander on campaign, who like hung out with Alexander and they wrote things down. There is nothing original to Alexander that exists. There's a lot of stuff that is like later historians read the firsthand sources and then use that as a source for their history of Alexander. But there's no like the the original stuff that Ptolemy wrote didn't survive. So his name is Alexandros Homegas, Alexander the Great, and he is Alexander the Third of Macedon or Macedon. The letter C is always a hard K in Greek and Roman, which is super fucking annoying. And I hate the letter C very much. We talked about how all of these other Greek states are hanging around, but they're all weak because they've been kind of vying for power. Macedon is a northern Greek territory. So it's a little removed from everywhere else. And it's a total backwater, even for Greece. Everyone thinks that these are just like goat fucking nobodies. And I mean, I'm from Kansas. I get it. (laughs) I mean, right. It's very. um, No, yeah, yeah. Like, I understand that you're in my same country, but it's like, why would you ever live there? Like, that's how people felt about Macedonia. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So um, Alexander is born on July 20th, 356 BCE. He actually just turned 2,376. Oh, happy birthday. Happy birthday. What a precious baby. What a sweet baby, Alex. So uh, his father is Philip II. Philip is really interesting, but the most important thing about him is that he uh, was a hostage for part of his life in one of the bigger Greek cities called Thebes, and he learned a shit ton about militaries. And so he comes back to Macedon, he becomes king, which is really just more like warlord, like it's not like a British fancy royal thing. It's just like, Mm -hmm. he was a really effective killer. So they put him in charge. And he conquers a bunch of new territory for Macedon. So he grows like a crazy big uh, kingdom. And suddenly, because when you conquer things in the ancient world, you steal all of their wealth. So Philip is new money fucking rich and has a shit ton of land. He also, he lost his right eye on campaign. So anytime you see anything related to Alexander the Great where someone has an eye patch, that's his dad. That's Philip. Oh, I thought you were about to tell me that he had an eye patch. Yeah, no, no, no. That's what I thought Philip. too. Philip had an eye I patch. was suddenly very attracted to Mark or Alex, whoever the hell he is. Yeah. Philip. Yeah. But Philip's even hotter. 
Because you know yeah. I have a daddy <laughs> complex. Well, and he's he's Val Kilmer in the 2004 movie. I mean, Val Kilmer, like, prior to when he was Batman, I'm into, but Batman after. Hmm. When was he in Top Gun? Because Before was... Batman. Yeah. Yeah, definitely before Batman. Oh my god. That is also one of the best Batman movies because it's when Seal gave us the song Kiss Kiss for the Rose to the Rose. By the Rose. By the Kiss Rose. by the Rose. Kiss by the Rose, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, he's missing an eye. He also has like a bunch of other war injuries, so he limps like crazy. And apparently he one of his hands got crushed and it didn't heal right. So it's like a twisted, nasty hand. So he's just like a rough looking dude. This is Philip still. This is Alexander's dad. Okay. Yeah, this is still checking every box of what I'm attracted to, so I'm like... You're like, I'm like war mangled, hero. limpy. Yeah. <laughs> Eye patch. Yeah. Ooh, like, yeah. You have a peg leg. Yeah, I mean, he limps. <laughs> he doesn't yeah. have a peg leg. Oh my god, maybe I do have a pirate fetish. <laughs> <laughs> it's all pirates, Sarah. Now we know. Well, because that's the thing, too, about Philip, is that he's, like, kind of like a Greek Viking or, like, a Genghis Khan. People either think of him as an enlightened Greek guy who, like, sets the stage for Alexander to conquer things, or they think of him as, like, a savage pirate. I will cut and burn everything, and that's how I get power. I envision him to be Anthony Hopkins from the Thor movies. Oh! Interesting, because Anthony Hopkins is Ptolemy in the Alexander movie. He's one of Alexander's generals. Okay. I cannot wait to watch the movie after this. this Dude, we should we should watch the movie. It'll be great. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, so that's that's Alexander's father. His mother is fabulous. Her name is Olympias, and she's actually she's not Macedonian. She's from a place called Epirus, which is like a neighboring territory to Macedon. It's just other Greeks. They're just like distant cousins of the Greeks. She's actually a Molotian from Epirus, but she's just, the important thing to remember about her is that she's always foreign. Like she's the foreign queen. She's not from here. Like maybe she had an accent. Like she's the foreign seductress. <laughs> Who came in and got some Philip crushed hand business and yes, made a baby. What? Yes, what? Maybe I'm yeah. Olympia. Uh, Olympias. Olympias. Well, and apparently they had, the people say that they had a love match. It seems unlikely based on the sources because Philip and Olympias kind of hate each other for a significant amount of time. So TBD on whether or not they actually got married for love or if it was tactical. It was absolutely for love. I know nothing about this except I know that it was for love. And obviously it's like War of the Roses where like they want to kill each other, but that's what makes it so fucking hot. There's like all this tension. Yeah. And they're just like, ooh, yeah, ooh. That's tension. Just so you know, listeners. <laughs> ooh, ooh yeah. yeah, ooh. ooh. <laughs> that's that's tension. Oh, that's hot. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, you're going to hate this next part because it's super not feminist at all. She... Olympias has several different names. Olympias is the name that she has basically for Alexander's whole lifetime. She takes it because Philip's horse wins the Olympic Games. So she renames herself Olympias to honor him. Well. It's like his horse. Okay. Yeah. I mean, sure. (laughs) So I'm sorry. So (laughs) the horse won a race. And she was like, that right there, that's what would make my man love me. I'm going to name myself after the horse. Yeah. 
Olympia. Olympia, sweetie. You could have been a queen. <laughs> she was a queen, but like. I know, but no, but she could have been like a legit queen if she just would have had like. She's Angelina Jolie in that movie. Who was Alexander? I will not tell you. I do not want you. I don't want the actor to ruin it. Please do not Google it right now. I already know who it is, but I won't say anything. Just because I don't want, like, for the peripheral characters, it's one thing. But anyway. Okay. So she, so Olympias is Philip's fourth wife of seven or eight. So um, most Greeks are monogamous. Macedonians are weird because they do polygamy. Okay, I'm into it. Yeah, right. I think Tara said in a previous episode that she was into polygamy anyway, so. Yeah. But so Alexander's only full-blooded sibling is named Cleopatra. She is not that Cleopatra. There are five other half-siblings through Philip's other wives, seven kids total. So he is kind of raised in this great big kind of cabal of royalty. Olympias is weird too because later sources claim that she was a part of a particular sect of the cult of Dionysus that worships snakes and that she like slept with snakes in the bed. So she's just like, she's the foreign queen who sleeps with snakes in her bed and she's mysterious and she's conniving and she's ambitious. So like, there's a lot, there's a lot to talk about with Olympias. Love it. Love that. I'm into it. So Alexander is raised as a Greek noble. So he's like a cultured guy. He can read, he can hunt, he can play the lyre, he can wrestle, he can ride a horse. He's tutored by Aristotle, the famous Greek philosopher, um, until he's 16. So he has a few years there where he's like really getting the most hardcore education ever. One of the famous stories from his childhood is that when he's about 12, Philip goes to buy a horse, but no one can mount the horse. So he basically gives up. And then Alexander notices that it's afraid of its shadow. And he's like, let me try. And he figures out how to gain the horse's trust by turning it towards the sun so the horse doesn't see its own shadow. And then he manages to mount it. And in the story, Philip is so thrilled that Alexander is so smart that he's like, Macedonia is too small for you. He buys Alexander the horse. And then that's Alexander's horse until Alexander gets to India. And he names the horse Bucephalus. Uh, he actually names a city after Bucephalus when Bucephalus dies, <laughs> which is only about three years before Alexander dies. Aww, yeah, that's precious. I really despise horses, so I'm like really not into this. The whole fact that Olympias changed her fucking name for a fucking horse and then Alexander's like literally in love with the horse. I'm just like, ugh, these people are not my people. Tara, did you have a bad experience with a horse? They I absolutely beautiful. did. Thank you so much for asking so I could yeah. tell the story. Yeah. Basically, what happened is that my parents sent me to Girl Scout camp. And when I arrived at Girl Scout camp, I got told that we had to go horseback riding, but I was pouting. I just wasn't really in the mood for it because I got put in this shitty room at Girl Scout camp. And so then we were supposed to ride and my horse didn't want to be ridden. And he threw me off and I like fell off the horse and like bounced <laughs> like Aww. and when I did I like flung back my arms really dramatically and my hand hit an electric fence <gasps> oh, and so my hand got really really burned by the uh electric fence but then at the same the only thing that I remember before I passed out was the horse like walking over to me and it <gasps> like and then it's like big eyes you can see the white of its eyes which means that it was terrified yeah and but that's like the last thing I remember before I passed out. And so I really don't have that big of a problem with horses until I see their eyes. And then I like literally will have a panic attack. 
Oh, Tara, that's horrible. That's horrifying. That is traumatic. It was very terrifying. And then nobody ever made me get on a horse again. And so, like, that whole adage of, like, you fall off the horse, get up back on. Nobody fucking did that for me. So, therefore, I needed many, many years of therapy. There's more that I had to have therapy about. There's always more. <laughs> yeah. Looking at you, Mom. <laughs> wow, horrifying. Um. Okay, anyway. So, Alexander is doing a lot of military stuff, even when he's a teenager. Alexander helps Philip to basically beat the shit out of all of the Greek states. He wraps them together in this thing called a Hellenic Alliance with Philip as the supreme commander. And he's like, we're going to go for Persia now. We're going to attack the great big beast that is Persia because I'm Philip. I can wrap all of Greece together. Greeks don't like unifying. It's like not a thing that they do. But they will if they're fighting against Persia. So Philip basically creates a puppet state that Macedon controls. And then he's like, we'll do the one thing that will keep you guys together, which is fight against Persia. The relationship between Alexander and Philip gets to be really, really weird and awkward, especially after all the shit happens in Greece. Philip takes another wife, who is his last wife, and it causes all of this friction with Olympias because Olympias is, like I said, a foreigner. The new wife is Macedonian. So any kids that Philip has with the new wife, and apparently she's like already pregnant or gets pregnant really quickly, any kids that he has with her are going to be full-blooded Macedonian, which means that they will have a better claim than Alexander because Alexander is half foreign. So uh, Philip refuses to 100% promise that Alexander is going to be the successor and tension escalates. And at one point, uh, Alexander and Olympias flee to Epirus to stay with Olympias's brother, who's the king of Epirus, because shit is so tense with, with Philip. And eventually they reconcile. Alexander comes back to Macedon, but apparently Olympias doesn't. Like, it's super awkward. Philip doesn't want to, like, cut Alexander out. He just doesn't want to make any promises that Alexander's going to be the one. And so obviously the, the contention is the succession. So he has all these wives, all these children, who's going to have the power. It's a very Game of Thrones kind of situation. Honestly, wouldn't that have been a much better Game of Thrones? I mean, better than the last season of Game of Thrones, which was famously terrible. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to get to our first murder mystery. So when Alexander is 20, his sister Cleopatra gets married. How dare she? How dare she? At the wedding celebration... Philip II is assassinated by one of his own bodyguards, Pausanias of Arrestus. Oh. So Pausanias immediately runs, but he trips over a vine and Philip's other bodyguards stab him with a spear. And so he immediately dies. And so from the start, people think that it's kind of suspicious that they kill the assassin instead of interrogating him, but Philip is dead. So suddenly this great man who has conquered so much of Greece is just like fucking out of it. The assassination is weird because no one knows what the motivation was. And even back then, nobody knew what the motivation was. It's not just that, like, for our perspective, it's unclear. There were a bunch of Greek historians who were like, we have no fucking idea. There were, there were all of these guesses. There's a really long story about how Pausanias, the, the guy who killed Philip, apparently Pausanias was Philip's boyfriend. But then they broke up and Philip was with this younger guy who was also named Pausanias. It's a very long story. It involves death and sexual assault, a lot of personal drama. The timeline for that theory is weird because the assassination would have been several years after 
the offense that would motivate Pausanias to kill Philip. So like, eh, kind of questionable. It's also possible that Olympias had something to do with it. Because again, she kind of hates Philip, like they don't have a very good relationship. And he refuses to guarantee that Alexander is going to inherit the throne. According to one story, Alexander has Pausanias's dead body crucified. But then when he leaves, Olympia sets up a memorial for him, which is a weird thing to do for your husband's assassin. So did she set up his assassination? No one really knows. And it's kind of unclear because if all of Philip's friends, because again, Philip is like a, a war guy. All of his friends are war seasoned murderers. That's like the thing that they did together. So to murder him and then to like gleefully enjoy his being dead and to honor his assassin feels like a really dumb thing to do. Like it, Alexander's position when Philip dies is a little tenuous until Alexander starts killing a bunch of people to secure his own position. So it's just super risky for Olympias to do that. There are some historians who think that she's just kind of being smeared with propaganda because she was foreign. And so she's the conniving foreign queen and she probably had something to do with his death. And it's like, I mean, maybe no one really knows. There are also a bunch of Greek diplomats at the wedding that Philip had invited. And so it's possible that one of them wanted Philip dead. Because obviously he had just beaten the fuck out of all of them, taken away most of their actual like freedoms as political units and been like, you're going to be a part of a puppet state that Macedon controls. And so maybe they wanted him dead. Nice. I still think it was her. She was pissed that she couldn't secure her baby boys. So that's a very, that's a valid theory. What do you think, Heather? Yeah, I was totally leaning towards her as well. (gasps) You guys, this is girl on girl crime. No, I think that that's what she should have done. I mean, like you go girl. (laughs) Yeah, no, no girl on girl crime. It's like you get what you need. Yeah. You do what you've got to do. (laughs) Yeah. You take care of your son. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that baby boy needed you. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, sweet baby Alex. So Alexander uses his popularity with the military to kind of jockey for power because again he had a lot to do with the other campaigns. Remember that last wife that Philip married, the one who would mm-hmm. have full-blooded Macedonian. Olympias mm-hmm. arranges for her children to be murdered. Sure. And then either she also arranges for that woman to be murdered, or she arranges for the kids to be killed, and then the woman commits suicide. So that story doesn't end very well. Yeah, I kind of knew that was going to happen. But that's another reason why I think that she killed her husband. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. She was just clearing the way for Alexander. Yeah. Who then has a bunch of people killed to sustain his claim. And then he decides to keep up his father's plans to attack Persia. He's like, okay, well, if I'm going to be king of Macedon now, I'm going to be Alexander III. And um, my dad had all of these great big schemes to attack Persia, had already whipped everybody together. So like everything's set up. I'm going to go ahead and continue what, what he started. There's actually an incident where Thebes hears a rumor that Alexander died. So they start a rebellion and Alexander just like pops on down to Thebes, burns it to the ground, murders everyone. It's like horrific, atrocious war crimes. So then everyone in Greece is really fucking scared of him. And they're all like, whatever you want, buddy, that's cool. <laughs> so that's that's kind of the status of Greece when Alexander is ready to ready to attack Persia. Okay. Is that, I mean, I guess you guys probably aren't very surprised that Alexander had such a bloody, like, consolidation path. 
No, I feel like everything that happened back then had to have been bloody. Yeah, everything was bloody. Everything was yeah. killing I mean, even murdering. eating, like, dinner was bloody. <laughs> <laughs> That's technically everything. true. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Then, so it's time to attack Persia. We're there. So I do, I have a, a moment that I built in just to, like, as a reminder that this is ancient warfare, so like there's tons of looting and slaughtering and raping and war criming. Alexander himself gets injured and nearly dies like several times. And I feel like in retrospect, it's really easy for people to say, Alexander like was confident and he walked in and he won and his enemies surrendered. But like there's a lot of blood and guts and pillaging and sadness. And I think that that kind of gets skated over when we look at Greek history because again, Europeans kind of own Greek history as European and Christian and Western. And we tend to kind of gloss over all of the details of like, Persia was kind of a nice place to live and people sometimes joined it voluntarily. And Alexander came in and murdered all of those people and destroyed the empire. And like, I feel like we have to mention that because I feel like it's a disservice to just kind of follow the line that was like, Alexander was a great leader. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's pretty rough. Agreed. So the Persian Empire is not doing awesome. I mean, I I have said that it, it was probably pretty nice to live there. That is probably true. But kind of like America, their political institutions were like, not, not great. The king of Persia was Darius III sometimes called Darius the third, Darius or Darius. He, he's not like a terrible ruler, but he's like not a great one either. He only really comes to power because the vizier of Persia poisoned the king and then poisoned the king's sons, like just kept fucking poisoning people until Darius came to the throne. And then he's like, oh shit, I'm not able to control Darius as much as I thought I would be able to. So he tries to poison Darius and then Darius... <laughs> ends up making him drink poison and die. And so like, that's how this election happened was just like poisoning. Darius's own ascension to the throne is just a perfect example of how fucked up stuff was. And poisoning is not always like a quick and painless and easy death. I mean, some of the poisons can be just brutal. Oh, absolutely. I guess that's what I was thinking about. Like, oh, po- oh he poisoned him and he's died. He, yeah, it's fine. But no, they can be horrific themselves. Yeah, yeah, for real. So Persia has a great big military, but they're a huge fucking deal. And so no one will really challenge them. So they're really complacent and they're kind of lazy. They're just like, whatever, man, no one's going to fucking bug us. Alexander ends up kind of betting that his smaller, like really well-trained force will win. And surprise, he was right. And like, it's worth noting that he and his dad both innovated in some key ways that helped them to be successful militarily. Famously, one of their big innovations is that they used longer spears. And that was like a great big thing that changed warfare. And it's like, have you tried poking them from farther away? <laughs> that is genius. <laughs> and that like really worked. So good for them. It's like, you know what, son? Come over here. I'm going <laughs> to show you something that yeah. really An idea. really helped me win some wars. Mm-hmm. This is going to be a game sticks. changer. Yeah. Great big In ones. In so many different ways, son. Yes. <laughs> Let me tell you about sticks and penises at the same yeah. time. <laughs> the longer, the better. The bigger, the better. <laughs> big. Think <laughs> yeah. penetration. Think big. It's huge. Mm-hmm. It's huge. 
So Alexander starts winning, and then he decides that he likes winning, and so he just keeps doing it. Uh, he takes Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, and then he kind of roops down through Syria, Palestine, into Egypt. Egypt is important because he gets to Egypt, and the Egyptians didn't really like being dominated by the Persians very much. Egyptians have their own culture and their own language and their own history, and they don't really like being wrapped into a, a foreign empire. And so when Alexander gets there, they're like, what up, buddy? Like, you're a liberator, you're our new pharaoh, you're a god, we love you. And Alexander believes himself to be descended from Hercules on one side of his family and Achilles on the other side. So when he gets to Egypt, that's one of the moments that Alexander really starts to believe that he is the son of Zeus, Zeus Amun, uh, which is the collaboration between Zeus and the Egyptian god. It's where he starts to feel like a god. Okay. And that's a theme that will kind of continue through his life and kind of escalate. And so suddenly he's just kind of like, I'm a god. Yeah. I'm so good at this. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So in Syria, he has a battle with Darius. Uh, and in that battle, the kings were on the battlefield, right? So that feels fucking risky. There's a reason why we don't put our president in, on like the front lines of war. It's because if they die, then you probably lose the battle, but you also lose your fucking head of state. So Darius I mean, being is that there. A bad thing sometimes. <laughs> Heather's like, maybe if we had a new war. Um, sorry. But um, so anyway, having Alexander there is really risky. Having Darius there is really risky. Like these are high stakes battles. Alexander apparently sees Darius and is like, the battle is kind of a toss up right now. Like we might even be losing. If I just kill Darius, everything will be fine. And so he starts riding toward Darius and Darius is like, fuck, 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 and fucking bails. He leaves the battle. He leaves behind his wife, daughters, and mother who he had brought. Um, I think it's the Battle of Bull Run in the American Civil War where people thought that the war wasn't going to be a big deal. So they like came down and had a little picnic and they were going to watch the battle. And then the battle turned out to be like very big and very bloody. And everyone was like, oh shit, that's kind of what happened to Darius. He brought his wife and his daughters and his mom in his entourage, he brought a bunch of gold with him because he was like, we're going to like make a day of it and like crush the Macedonians and it'll be awesome. And then Alexander starts writing for him and he's like, fuck this, fuck this, fuck this. I'm out of here. And he just bails and he leaves it all behind, <laughs> which is like not a good look. And then the Persians lose the battle partially because they're like, our king fucking bailed. Like we can't be in very good shape right now. And then, so later, he starts offering Alexander all these peace terms. And the peace terms are basically like, you can keep everything that you took, and I'll pay you to give my family back, but like, please, please, please stop. Like, just fucking please stop. And Alexander's like, no, thank you for asking. Sorry. I'm going to keep fucking yeah. taking your shit because it's fun for me. Right. Um, apparently, he doesn't treat Darius's family very badly. His mom disowns Darius for leaving her behind yeah. and adopts Alexander. And Alexander starts calling Darius's mother mom. So like, that should tell you all that you need to know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, snap, yeah. crackle. But so Alexander is now obsessed with killing Darius. It kind of becomes something where he's like, I need to hunt down the King of Kings and I want to take over his empire. And the way that I can do that is if I kill him. So now, now it's a hunt. Oh, and one thing I forgot to mention too is when Alexander gets to Egypt too, that's when he founds Alexandria, which becomes a huge cultural center in Egypt. That's more of a fun fact, though. That's not super important for our story. So, okay, this is my art review, and I sent you both the email link. So let me know when you're both looking at it. 
first thing I see is a giant fucking butt cheek. <laughs> so many fucking horses. Notice that it's in bad shape. So this is the Battle of Issus. This is the battle where Alexander starts riding towards Darius and Darius starts running away. Note, this is from Pompeii. So this is a Roman recreation. There was probably a Greek painting that was original that probably had a little bit more gravitas. And so this is a Roman. This is basically like a Lego Mona Lisa. It's like there was an original artwork that was very iconic and very important and possibly like had a lot to do with the culture of the time. But this is a later representation of that artwork. And obviously little details are going to be lost, but this is what we have. So the man to the left in this painting is Alexander. You can see him with that very Roman nose. Mm -hmm. Um, He has Medusa on his armor, which is cool. And then the guy to the right, who's kind of poking up above the rest of the crowd is Darius. And you can see how his hand is outstretched in like desperation. His eyes are really wide. You can just see in his expression, he's going, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. Exactly. Yeah. And you're right that the first thing that you see when you look at this painting is that right on top of Darius, there's a huge horse's ass that's like, look at how fucking stupid this dude is. Yeah, it is, totally. Like, it's it's this embarrassing, like, Alexander looks very calm and very regal. Mm -hmm. If you look, the spear that he's holding continues through a couple places where the mosaic has degraded, but Mm -hmm. he's stabbing someone. That someone is supposed to be Darius's brother. Oh, like this is Alexander in like a victorious battle where he's kind of nailing it. And Darius, who has all of these spears behind him that are pointing toward Alexander and Darius is still shitting his pants and there's a giant horse ass right there. Yeah. Can we please take a second for every all of our listeners to use some sort of zooming in quality on the fucking horses all the way over to the right? Because that is what Tara is fucking scared of. All three of the, like, three or four of the black horses over there, their eyes are freaking out. Their teeth are, like, their mouths aren't even lined up. They're, like, literally, like, and that. They look like Muppet horses. Yes, that is therapy. Tara, look away. Just look away. Just look away. And then in the center, the one, the no, now I'm, like, in it. It's, like, when you're seeing a car crash and you just, like, can't blink. Like, this is me. And then the one of Darius's brother is getting killed by Mark Alexander the Great. If you zoom in on that horse, that's also terrifying because it looks as though it, they gouged out his eyeballs. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think his eyes are supposed to be closed, but your point is very well taken. And that's extremely traumatic. And I didn't know that you had a horse thing when I chose this. I'm just saying, this is a fucking terrifying horse. Well, I'm sorry to traumatize you. All right, I'll, you'll get the bill. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so then... I am exiting out of this, just so you know. Yes, please exit out of it. Yeah, please be done with it. So then comes the Battle of Gaugamela, which is kind of one of the big battles. It's in 331 BCE. Alexander is 25 years old. He's only 25. At the time of recording, I am 26 and useless. So yeah, Alexander is 25 years old when he has Persia by the fucking throat. The Battle of Gaugamela is generally understood to be like, the last big one. Like there are other things that he does later that are like lower scale. But this is the time when people are like, holy shit. And then Darius is basically running around his country as a refugee. Uh, his own men kill him before long. Wow. And I'm sorry, he, this is the guy from 300. No, oh. no, no, no. That 300 is about 100 years before Alexander. Oh, okay. 
Because mm -hmm. that's during the Greco-Persian Wars. Oh, okay. So that, yeah, that's Xerxes. Anyway, but so yeah, Darius' own men kill him. Alexander is so mad that someone else kills him that is not Alexander, because Alexander really wanted to kill Darius himself. He has the killers executed. <laughs> He's like, how fucking oh. dare you steal my kill from me? He's like, that was mine. I obviously, like, tagged it. Like, you guys... <laughs> Uh, and so then one of Darius's governors crowns himself as the king of Persia. That would be kind of like if the president died and then the governor of California was like, then I, as the you know biggest state, declare myself president. And everyone else is like, no, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> that's not how that works. But so he's not really like no one really gives a shit about him. But Alexander is like, I can't have him running around. So he chases him around Central Asia. And that's important because Alexander founds a bunch of Alexandrias as he's kind of wandering around Asia. And this is also when he meets his first wife. She is a oh. Bactrian princess named Roxana or Raokhna. Roxanne! You don't have to wear your dress tonight. <laughs> yes, exactly. Apparently, he falls in love with her immediately. And as then one marries, does with the Roxanne. Oh, as yes. one does with the Roxanne. She was uh, wearing that dress. Mm -hmm. And marries her pretty much as soon as possible, even though everyone tells him not to. All of his Greeks are like, don't fucking marry this chick. And he's like, but she's not pretty. And her name is Roxanne. And her name is Roxanne. Roxanna. All in fucking line. Roxanna. And if you tell someone not to do something, they're going to do it even harder. I mean, that's true as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then Alexander goes to Persepolis, which is the uh, ceremonial capital of Persia, and burns it to the ground. <laughs> so that's kind of the end of that. Sure. Yeah, why not? So he owns Persia now. Way to be. So he wants to reconcile with and kind of include the Persians as he builds the empire. He's like, yeah, I know I fucked up their lives and murdered a bunch of people and burnt their city to the ground, but like... They are my citizens now. There are too many of them for us to just like exterminate. So I like want them to be a part of things. And they do know how things run, which is very helpful as well. And most Greeks, including his tutor Aristotle, thought that non-Greeks were barbarians who deserved to be treated like slaves. So he's like, maybe, maybe people are people. And all the Greeks were like, fuck them. They're not Greek. Apparently he stations some of his Macedonians in Central Asia. And they're like, you can't grow olive trees here. How are we expected to live? <laughs> well, you know, that just brings me back to Mount Olives and martinis. And, yes, exactly. You know, Very Mediterranean. I, I get it. Yeah. Uh, but so he treats the Persian nobles really well. And he lets a lot of them serve in government positions, which is kind of controversial. The Greeks are like, what the fuck are you doing? And it's all kind of part of his, it's worth saying a part of my empire, even though I murdered you all. Uh, he starts to adopt Persian customs. And the Greeks, again, they think that Persians should be treated like slaves. They do not like that he is doing Persian things now. I want to call it going native. I understand that that saying is racist. It's kind of associated with spending too much time with Native Americans and then adopting their culture. But because it is racist, it kind of makes sense here because the Greeks are being racist when they say, you're hanging out with Persians and you're going native to the Persian lands, they are racially inferior to us. Therefore, it is bad to take on their culture. You're a traitor to your own culture. So the fact that that's racist actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, it's a good point. So one thing 
honestly, my favorite one that Alexander adopts that everyone fucking hates is a thing called proskinesis. Proskinesis is Greek for kissing toward. It's an act to acknowledge someone's rank. So what you do is when you come forward to the king, you bow down and apparently you lay flat on the floor to be like, I'm not worthy. You are so much greater than I am, blah, blah, blah. Wait a minute. Is that sort of like when um, in the king and I... Or no one, no one's head could be above the king's head. I, I think it's related, but not quite the same because proskinesis is an act that you do. It's like bowing and scraping in the UK. People didn't really bow to kings in Greece. That was not like a thing that you did. You only bow down to gods. You do not bow down to people. And so when Alexander's like, oh, the Persians do this, so you should bow down to me. The Greeks were like, what the fuck? You're not a god. You're a person. We all know that you're a person. And Alexander was like, not only am I a god, or at least a demigod or a hero of some kind, I'm also a Persian king. And that means that the Persian customs apply. And the Greeks were like, fuck this. (laughs) They did not appreciate it. And it's kind of like how we talked about in Pontius Pilate, the Romans wanted the Jews to acknowledge Tiberius as a god. And they were like, we have Yahweh. We're set. We're not looking for another god. (laughs) The Greeks did not appreciate being asked about down to Alexander. Things start to kind of fall apart with the Greeks at this point. There is an assassination plot against him and Alexander. So apparently one of his people hears about the plot and either is a part of the plot or is just like, whatever, I don't care if Alexander gets assassinated. So Alexander has that guy killed. And then the rule is if you kill someone for that kind of crime, then you also kill their dad. (laughs) because that way there's no like retribution because if you kill someone's son then the dad's gonna be like fuck you Mm -hmm. so he has a bunch of his own people killed for this assassination plot and he also kills one of his own officers in a drunken rage because the guy is like you've given up on greek culture you've been corrupted apparently his name was cletus apparently he was a real straight talker and he was like i think this is bullshit and they were all drinking it was a party and alexander murders him in a drunken rage because he's like you don't tell me what to do i'm the fucking king so i mean valid (laughs) who among us (laughs) right so kind of in spite of all that he kind of pushes on he makes it to the indus river so like india pakistan region and takes over part of india This is when he has the battle with the elephants. He fights a king called King Porus, who is apparently awesome. And he's like, I like you, King Porus. You can you can stay in charge as long as you report to me. And King Porus is like, "Okay, I guess. I mean, sure, if I have to. I mean, like, whatever, man. But so he's all the way to India and and he's no signs of stopping. He has not lost a battle. He never does. And then the army mutinies. Because they're fucking tired of walking. They're like, we're sick of walking around the fucking world. You are not going to stop. You're just going to keep going until you reach the encircling sea because they thought that all land was encircled by a giant ocean. And they were like, we're tired. We want to go home. We haven't been home in years, blah, blah, blah. So they end up going back to Persia. On the way, some of the generals try to mutiny again. And Alexander causes all these problems for them. So they eventually come crawling back. So as reconciliation alexander marries them to a bunch of persian nobles in mass marriages marrying greeks to persians when the greeks don't fucking like the persians was also not a very popular move this is also when he marries darius's daughter and also her cousin who is the daughter of the previous king 
So he adds two wives. So he's up to three wives now. Yeah. Yes, he has three wives total. Okay. And I think that this is a good time to talk about Hephaestion. Who's that? Yeah, I mean, tell me more. So Hephaestion is Alexander the Great's best friend from childhood. He's pretty much always with Alexander, including on military campaign. Alexander trusts him a lot and gives him really, really crucial tasks. So like when Alexander takes Sidon, which is a Phoenician city-state, he authorizes Hephaestion to appoint the new ruler. And apparently Hephaestion does a really good job. The king turns out to be a good one and he's remembered, blah, blah, blah. Also, remember how I said that Darius's mother kind of adopted Alexander and was like, you're my, you're my son now because fuck my real son Darius because he sucks. When she goes to Alexander to be like, fuck my son, she actually walks up to Hephaestion first because they're dressed really similarly. And she's like, oh, Alexander, blah, blah, blah. And Alexander like taps on her shoulder and is like, um, hey. And she's super embarrassed because obviously she doesn't want to fuck this up. And Alexander says, like, basically, don't worry about it. This is also Alexander. He talks about like how they share souls. Apparently they share all of their secrets. And Alexander gives Hephaestion for a wife, uh, Darius's other daughter. So he's literally a part of the royal family now. They compare themselves to Achilles and Patroclus in the Iliad, which is which we'll circle back to in just one more second. But it seems that Alexander and Hephaestion had a sexual or at least a romantic relationship. Why do you think that? Is it because they were close companions? Yeah, it was just because they, they seem to be so close. They talk about being a soul together. The connection with Achilles and Patroclus is important because... The were they or were they not gay question, like Achilles and Patroclus are the perfect example. People debate this all the time when they read the Iliad. Nothing explicit is mentioned in the primary sources as far as we know, both between Patroclus and Achilles and also with Hephaestion and Alexander. Like there is no explicit like they were in love or they were fucking. There is nothing quite like that. But that's not really... That doesn't really say anything because it could mean that it was so normal that nobody bothered to mention it or that it was so embarrassing that nobody wanted to talk about it. And it's also possible, too, that it varied by the Greek city-states because I mentioned before that Macedonia had polygamy. Other Greeks didn't. Like, it's possible that Macedon thought about this differently than Athens did. So there's a, there's a lot of like weird kind of give and take. There are accounts of Alexander and Hephaestion like talking all night and sleeping over together and blah, blah, blah. And obviously there's a lot of kind of past bias versus present bias where if you read this in 1800 where there were no gay rights to speak of, then like you're going to see them as just being friends. And if you read this right now when gay rights is such a hot issue for so many people, then you want to read them as gay. So you possibly will kind of be biased in the opposite direction. I'm just not really following along with them having a relationship. I mean, it could have happened, but it just kind of like, that's such an easy out for people to do in history is just being like, well, they were close. So they must have been gay. Right. So that's a really good segue. Let's talk about sexuality in ancient Greece. I've just been waiting for this. What took you so long? (laughs) All I want to do is talk about sexuality. First of all, the idea of sexual orientation is really, really new. It used to be that if you were 
straight, you were normal. And if you were not straight, you were bad. And there was no like fluidity. There was no bisexuality versus pansexuality versus being transgendered versus being gay. You know, like none of that stuff existed. Even like if you go way, way back, the sexuality spectrum wasn't really like termed in a very clear way that we can necessarily say. Greek men seem to have been kind of bisexual. That's not like super accurate, but that seems to be the norm, is that most Greek men had sexual relations with both women and men. Obviously, there are various forms of blah, 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 but it mostly is, there was a really strong sense of misogyny in ancient Greece. And the view, kind of generally speaking, is that women are buzz-killing harpies. They either can't or don't fight wars, which is like the coolest thing that a guy can do. That's how you get honor. And so like, they're sexy and you need them to reproduce, but like, women kind of suck and they just weigh you down. Isn't it just like so much fun to be with your like muscly bros and like enjoy each other's bodies was kind of the view. There's also a practice called uh, pederasty. So in, in that practice, older, kind of more established men take younger men under their wing and mentor them. And then once the boy gets to be old enough, usually old enough, at least for a beard, like it was not, I won't say that it wasn't pedophilic because it kind of was, it was not as explicitly pedophilic as pedophiles would like to say it was, mm-hmm. but the the relationship between the older man and the younger man is usually sexual. It has a kind of sexual undertone to it. So there is quite a lot of male sexuality in, in ancient Greece. And I mentioned before with Pausanias, assassinating Philip II, they there's a lot of man love in that story. It's about the man-on-man lovers. Uh, Philip and Pausanias apparently had a relationship, and then they broke up, and then Philip had a different boyfriend, and this is in addition to his wives, and he wasn't married to his boyfriends because that's not what you do. You don't marry your men. You have women for that purpose, if that makes sense. So it's like when you're working out, you're with your bros and you jerk off with your bros because your bros are fun and they're not as naggy as your wife. But like when you go home to your wife and your kids, that is like your straight kind of part of your life. So it's kind of compartmentalized in a way. So if if it was so accepted or the norm, when and why did it become so taboo? Well, it was never, it really varies exactly to what extent it is accepted sometimes mm-hmm. and again this is by city state and this is by time period and blah 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 mm-hmm. but there seems to be some component of male sexuality until about the roman period the roman period is kind of where they start to tamp down caesar augustus who is the first emperor of course after julius caesar we talked about caesar augustus in pontius pilate my greek and roman mythology teacher compared him to ronald reagan He's kind of the conservative, social conservative guy who everyone's like, this is kind of the ideal version of Rome, blah, blah, blah. Apparently, for a lot of the Roman, at least imperial period, it was illegal to anally penetrate a Roman citizen, but not slaves. So it seems to me, as someone who hasn't studied it super intensely, that you kind of compartmentalize various ways that you are bisexual. And then as you continue, as history continues, that is, the Roman period kind of sees a decline. And by the time Christianity comes, it kind of gets locked up. And also there are 
characters in history, I think there was a Roman emperor in particular who had interest in women only. And everyone was like, this dude's not into guys like at all. Like that's weird. Like being bisexual, a compartmentalized bisexual was kind of the norm for quite a long period of ancient history. Hmm. Okay. I do. Okay. So I do want to point off really fast that I've left off lady sexuality. There isn't very much on female homosexuality that is partially because of misogyny but honorable mention for the origin of the word lesbian as being from the island of lesbos which is the home of the iconic lesbian poet sappho who's who is just like i mean i i love lesbians they're the most fabulous people but there's not just a ton of attested material the research and the sources aren't very good about lesbian materials in ancient greece so Sorry to leave our lesbian listeners high and dry, but that's the way it is. But please subscribe and rate. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't, maybe don't factor the lack of lesbian content in. We'll we'll find lesbian content for you later, I promise. Yeah, we'll find it somewhere. All of this is to say that it's very possible that Alexander and Hephaestion had a sexual relationship in addition to being best friends. Uh, It doesn't necessarily mean they were monogamous boyfriends. Some people say... Alexander married three women, so there's no way he had a sexual relationship with Hephaestion. Obviously, that doesn't quite pan out because of the way that most Greek sexuality was. The idea that Patroclus and Achilles are kind of their idols, like apparently they go to the site where the Trojan War was held and they lay wreaths down on the alleged grave sites of Achilles and Patroclus. Each one of them lays a wreath down, Alexander on Achilles and Hephaestion on Patroclus. And when Patroclus dies in the Iliad, Achilles goes insane, murders everyone, does all these super taboo things, defiles Hector's corpse. Like, his wrath is incredible, and part of that is ascribed to the idea that Patroclus was his boyfriend. (laughs) So the idea that Hephaestion and Alexander have that same relationship is, like, kind of compelling. Also, and I really want to say this because it's one of my favorite quotes from Alexander the Great, There is later commentary in the ancient world. There's one quote from a philosopher that Alexander was only defeated once by Hephaestion's thighs. I'm sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Alexander never lost a battle, but Mm -mm. Hephaestion's thighs, mama, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they laid him to waste. I uh, I like that. Okay. (laughs) So, and... It seems that regardless of the fact that in the sources, Alexander the Great and Hephaestion don't seem to have an explicit relationship, in the ancient world, after they are dead, it seems that people do seem to think that they had a sexual relationship. I do want to mention, too, Alexander's father had a bunch of different wives, so you can, you can think that Alexander had room in his life for a lot of loves. You know, it's possible that Hephaestion was one of many, or maybe none of many, and they were just super close. I mean, who knows? Love who you love. Who knows? Love is love. Yes, love is love. I tend to feel like they did have a sexual relationship. They do seem to more or less be in love, but, you know, maybe not. But that's kind of the fun of it, is that you have to be able to acknowledge the possibility, and you also have to be able to acknowledge the possibility that it wasn't true. It's also worth mentioning, too, after Hephaestion dies. So Hephaestion dies of a fever uh, after seven days in a place called Ekbatana, 
which is in Persia. And Alexander is totally consumed with grief. Uh, he lies on Hephaestion's body for so long that he has to be forcibly removed. Aww. He issues a decree banning music because music sounds too happy and the entire nation has to be in mourning. He arranges for Hephaestion to be worshipped. He can't quite swing God status, but he arranges for divine hero. So Hephaestion is worshipped. And he spends about 10,000 talents on the funeral. I saw in one 2004 paper, that's the equivalent of $20,000 per talent. So that means that Hephaestion's funeral was $200 million. Whoa. And Alexander himself dies about eight months later. Of a broken broken heart. heart. And he's drinking really heavily when he dies. We're going to get to his death in just one second. But, you know, it, it seems that he is super tragically affected by Hephaestion's death. And that's part of the evidence, too. Well, he's devastated. It sounds like, you know, when um, when you're married and one year, you know, like your wife dies and then you go, you die soon after mm-hmm. and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Now that happens yeah. a lot. It's like Aww. their version of the notebook. Yeah, Aww. absolutely. But they were really young. They were almost exactly the same age, too, if you believe the sources. So Hephaestion would have died when he was like 31, 32. Damn. That would be how old I That's am. so young. Mm-hmm. all right bye so, guys no. <laughs> <laughs> peace out yeah. i didn't conquer anything but right. i am mm-hmm. happy to die young that you know of mike i've been playing a lot of civilization i've been conquering a lot alexander is planning an invasion of arabia when he dies unexpectedly in babylon on june 11th 323 bce so he's 32 he's about a month away from 33 The details are a little bit sketch because there are a bunch of different accounts and those accounts are probably influenced by propaganda. It's really poor form for your hero to die in a lame way. So to kind of dress up the details seems kind of likely. It seems that he, whatever was happening, he was drinking wine in one account. It's undiluted wine. The Greeks would dilute their wine with water sometimes. Uh, So he was drinking a shit ton of wine. He got a fever. He lingers for about two weeks and then he dies. Huh. Anticlimactic. Yeah, absolutely. Like he's a great, yeah, he's the great conqueror, the great warrior. He's been grievously wounded many times and he dies of just like a random fever. It's possible that he was assassinated. I kind of overspoke in Babel when I said nobody thinks that, but I would say in my experience, it's a minority opinion just because most known poisons would not kill you in the way that Alexander died. He has a bunch of enemies. So there are a lot of people who would have wanted in on his murder. There's one guy who hated his mom. Alexander recalled him to Babylon. And normally when Alexander recalled people to Babylon, it was to execute them. So he might've thought that he was going to get executed. His son was, I think, Alexander's cupbearer. So like maybe he did it, but... We just, like, we don't know. It's also possible that he had malaria or typhoid, because obviously those are crazy killers in that region of the world. Maybe it was alcohol poisoning. Again, he seems to be really drinking heavily. But he also just, like, had a shit ton of war wounds. He was heartbroken about Hephaestion. <laughs> like, you know, he was he was not jogging two miles a week and, like, making sure that he ate vegan. The dude was gallivanting around the world taking spears all the time. So who knows? But I mean, he was broken. He just sounds like he was just broken. Yeah. Yeah. 
But so this is when they cover Alexander's body in honey, which um, I did look it up. It's a way of preserving bodies. And apparently it's super effective. Ooh, I was right. You were right, Tara. This was the only thing I forgot at the beginning of this, that the only thing I did know was that he was put in sarcophagus of honey. (laughs) And it was because he glowed like, like a sun. So he is going to be brought back to Macedonia, but Ptolemy steals the body before it gets to Macedonia. Uh Oh, can you imagine if he was like, I'm thirsty. I'm going to make myself some tea and just like took a spoonful of that honey. And was like, (laughs) anyway, Ptolemy arranges for the body to be stolen as it's on its way to Macedon and brings it to Memphis, which is the capital of Egypt. And then later it gets moved to Alexandria and a great big tomb is constructed. So the Ptolemies build this tomb and basically they use the body as a propaganda piece, which really works because obviously I'm getting a little ahead of myself because I have a whole section about the succession. But when the Ptolemies take over Egypt, they are Alexander's friend and Alexander is a foreign conqueror of the native Egyptian territory who claims to be a deity. That's not a very solid biography if you want to take over a country so what they do instead is the Ptolemies use Alexander's body as like we are the keepers we are close to Alexander they spread a rumor that the Ptolemies are related to Alexander and using that they're able to solidify power in Egypt that works beautifully so they keep the body in Alexandria and apparently it's accessible like people visit it for hundreds of years subsequently It's kind of unclear to me how well the honey works to preserve him. I don't know if he's like rotting or bones at any point, but people visit the body. Like Lennon's body? Yeah, exactly. That's, uh, yeah, that's a really good parallel. It's like a cultural icon. Alexander changed the world. And so people want to pop by and see his, see his remains. Julius Caesar famously goes before he fucks Cleopatra. Uh, Caesar Augustus goes. Apparently Caligula, the later Roman emperor, he takes Alexander's breastplate. Uh Uh-oh. Which is like such a dick move, by the way. I'm sorry, who took that? Caligula. And I'm sorry, Caesar had to stop in before he went to have relations with Cleopatra. He was like, hold on, I need to go see this preserved body. Pretty sure. It was definitely the same visit to Egypt. I'm not sure when the relations happened. But yes, it was the the same time that he was in Alexandria. So how long was he in the honey? I mean, how long was he on display? They filled a sarcophagus with honey and apparently it seems they never washed him off that he was just covered in honey. And again, I don't know how well preserved he was, but his body stays in Alexandria for a very, very long time for several centuries. The Ptolemies rule Egypt from Alexander's general Ptolemy. And then after Cleopatra dies, Rome takes over Egypt. Rome is in control of Egypt when Rome becomes Christian, as Rome is becoming Christian, which is in the 400s CE. So we are, you know, 700 years after Alexander's death. There are a bunch of Christians in Alexandria, the Roman Egyptian town, Alexandria, and they go around and they're destroying pagan sites because obviously pagan sites are pulling you away from God and Christians don't really like that very much. So when they do that apparently alexander's body is missing no one really knows exactly what happened to it if it was destroyed or an actually pretty common theory is that alexander the great's body was taken 
by people who still adhered to the pagan religion and still, you know, revered Alexander and that they spirited it away and it's never been found. Huh. I just did a quick Google search about it (laughs) because I wanted to know where like they think it is. And in 2018, they found a sarcophagus that they thought might be his, but it ended up being a family of three all buried into one giant sarcophagus. And Mm -hmm. so they're like, it wasn't him, but we do believe that it has a curse on it. And so we really don't want to find it. (laughs) What these very historical, like, archaeologists said in this news story. They're like, (laughs) I'm not going to look very hard for it, but yeah. It just was like a very like news, news, news. And then it was like, and we think there's a curse. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Suddenly this news story is not very good. Lord. But yeah, if you have Alexander the Great's body, email us holyspiritspodcast.gmail.com. We would love love to to see it and see if it has a curse. And also if it still tastes like honey. Oh my God. I just picture like this sarcophagus being found like. I don't know, years from now when we're very long dead and just opening it and it being like Winnie the Pooh inside. <laughs> like, just, just being like, uh, oh, bother. Anyway, so he's dead very suddenly. The succession becomes an immediate problem. So Roxana, who is his first wife, allegedly kills the other two wives because she's pregnant and she does not want to deal with the competition. After Alexander's death, it turns out that she has a son. But remember that thing where everyone told him not to marry her? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She's like she's like not important enough to hold down the fort for the baby. People don't really care about her very much. So a bunch of Alexander's generals kind of try to arrange for the baby to take the throne, but it falls apart and eventually Alexander IV is assassinated. And Alexander's older brother is also assassinated because there was like a co-regency thing, but Alexander's older brother was seemed to have some kind of disability. So it was all just like a weird puppet scheme and no one really wanted to wait for Alexander's baby to grow up. And anyway, everyone ends up assassinated and it falls apart. So wait, what happens to his son? He gets assassinated. The baby? Yeah. I mean, he gets assassinated when he's like 12, but yeah. Hmm. That's sad. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like that. Yeah, Alexander's baby and brother both end up dying in the kind of squabble, and it eventually gets split up. Uh, so it falls to the Diatikai, the successors, and they split things up kind of after the dust settles. The Far East areas and like India, they were the last to join with Alexander's conquered territory and they are obviously the farthest away. So they're like, yeah, fuck this. We're out of here. But in Egypt, you get Ptolemy. And so he founds the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt. Cleopatra VII, who is that Cleopatra, the Cleopatra who fucks Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, is the last pharaoh. And then Egypt eventually gets absorbed by Rome. So Alexander conquers Egypt from under the Persians. Then Ptolemy takes over. Ptolemy holds it for a while, and then it goes to Rome. Seleucus is the name of the man who takes over Persia. He founds the Seleucid Empire. This is where Judea eventually ends up, so we're certainly going to end up mentioning them again. 
And then, so the Seleucid Empire eventually kind of collapses. Judea secedes and becomes the Hasmonean dynasty, and that's what Pompey conquers. So eventually that falls under Rome too. And then Antigonus in Greece founds the Antigona dynasty. They also get conquered by Rome. So long story short, it gets divvied up, but all of the various subdivisions end up conquered by Rome. (laughs) So there you go. So the legacy is something that I do want to spend just like a brief moment discussing because I think that it's important in the, in the Bible, Alexander is mentioned in the book of Daniel, which claims to foretell Alexander's coming. Daniel was probably written after Alexander. So it wasn't so much foretelling him as writing in history and then pretending like you were foretelling it. In uh, Daniel chapter eight, they talk about a mighty one horned ram from Greece, which defeats the two horned ram, which represents Persia and Medea. And then the four lesser kingdoms rise up after the one horned is gone, which is the diatokai. Like it's very obviously, very obviously Alexander. Also, as I said before, this is the reason why the New Testament is written in Greek. And this is why Greek is a lingua franca in the Middle East. Do we remember what a lingua franca is? Oh, 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 it's like Spanglish. No, that's a Creole. That's close. Uh, no, a lingua franca is like, I speak English, you speak Russian, but we both speak French as a second language, so we speak French to each other. Uh... French would be the lingua franca in that case. But so basically what that means is, if you're from Judea and you speak Hebrew or Aramaic, and then you run into someone from Persia who speaks Persian you guys can both speak Greek to each other. So there there are two things that I want to highlight about the lingua franca thing for Greek. The first thing is geography. Christianity kind of grows on a Greek superhighway. It means that Christianity being a very Greek religion instead of a very Hebrew one, it spreads like wildfire because everyone and their dog fucking speaks Greek. Uh, It spreads to all these other Greek speaking areas. Yeah, it, it just, it spreads really easily. The second part of that is that the Greeks are kind of like Americans were in the 1950s. They are new to the power scene. They are suddenly super important kind of overnight. They are very innovative. They're very new world, challenging things, shaking it up, being kind of up and coming. And other traditions like Persia to some extent, but like Hebrew culture, which was super conservative and hadn't changed in in meaningful ways in several hundred years, suddenly Greek culture is very, you know, maybe we should question everything, develop all these philosophies and like talk about science instead of, you know, doing these same religious traditions that we've had for hundreds of years. And I don't mean to dunk on ancient Hebrew culture because that's how lots and lots of different cultures were, but Greek was kind of a challenge to all of the old world orders. So we get a super highway on which Christianity can spread really easily because it's more of a Greek religion than a Hebrew one. And it means that there's this new kind of openness to change that spreads through Greek speaking areas, which is also important. Alexander is just super fucking important. He, he's a legend because he conquered so much territory. Julius Caesar visits his tomb. Napoleon loved Alexander. That's part of why Napoleon invades Egypt. And it kicks off this, they call it the Hellenistic period in the Middle East. There are Buddhist sculptures that are apparently in Greek style. Obviously, we've talked about the New Testament, but it also kind of flows the other way because Alexander was 
acting really Persian, the Persians introduced to Europe the idea of an absolute monarchy. This is the first time you get a king who's like, I am fucking in charge. You do not question me. There are no questions that come from the peanut gallery. The throne says what's going to fucking happen. And then everyone else is on board, which was a very Middle Eastern thing. He was never defeated in battle, but also he never had a chance to fuck up governing because he died too soon. So he like conquered everybody. He brought it all together. But then when it was really like, it's time to write the tax code, he was like, oh, I'm dead. Bye. He never really like had a chance to be stationary and deal with like the stupid banal stuff that governing is. (laughs) So like, he's kind of a legend because he had a bunch of military success, but then he died before he had a chance to fuck anything up. Yeah, he died young. He accomplished a lot, but in such a short amount of period of time. But mm-hmm. I mean, it just seems like, yeah, he had some successes, but he really didn't live long enough to really do much. So, like, I don't really get the love affair of him. Well, he had the biggest empire in the history of the world at the time. And he was 30. <laughs> I mean, I guess we did enjoy the big sticks. The big sticks. Yeah. <laughs> so. I feel like it's a lot of like dramatics about his life that nobody knows was really true and that it's like more of the legend of him versus like the truth of him, which is like everything in life, but still. I mean, I think there's a lot of truth in that statement, but it's pretty incontrovertible that he did conquer the entirety of the Persian the Persian Empire and he got all the way to India in addition to having conquered basically all of Greece except for Sparta. So You know, apparently Julius Caesar, when he was like 28, he went to a temple of, um, I think it was Achilles or Heracles or something. And he saw a statue of Alexander because Alexander claimed descendants from Achilles and Heracles. He was like, I am 28 and I'm never going to be as cool as Alexander. I haven't accomplished anything in my life to speak of. And Alexander ruled half the world at this point. Like, that's a huge deal. Yeah. It really is a huge deal. But still not. Drinking the Kool-Aid? Yeah, I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid. That's what I want to say. Mm-hmm. So that that concludes our main segment. That concludes Alexander the Great. Alexander the okay? Like, He's I, fine. <laughs> he was neat. I want to go watch the movie now. It's three and a half hours. Can we say who the actor was now that played Alexander the Great? Yes, we can. Colin Farrell. Oh, interesting. As a yeah, blonde. and he's real weird in it. He's like an odd man child. It's questionable. <laughs> I mean, is that really that far from his <laughs> like real life? I mean, right. Okay, so that concludes Alexander. Next time, we're back at the Old Testament by talking about Abraham and Sarah. Ooh. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe, and join our Facebook group. Yeah, give us all the love. All the love. Goodbye. Bye. 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 This time, our bonus segment is about Sparta. Oh, my God. Okay, so Sparta. This is the part where we finally get to talk about 300.
Yes, we're going to talk a lot about 300. Okay, because literally the whole time I've been like, you promised me some fucking 300 and none of this happened. We're going to have to get there, though. So what's the guy's name in 300 with the abs? They all have abs, so that doesn't narrow it down at all. Gerard Gerard Butler? Yes. Yeah, King Leonidas. All right. King Leonidas. Mm -hmm. Or Leonidas, if you want to be really, really accurate. Leonidas. Dude, 300 is racist as fuck. It really is. It's like horrible representation of just like completely whitewashing and saying that as long as you put some makeup on somebody, they can be some other race. And it's horrible. However, I am Sparta! This is Sparta. This is Sparta! (laughs) I do want to talk about 300 more. I have a really good article that I want to put in the Facebook group because 300 is also a very fascist movie. First, I want to talk about Sparta a little bit more generally. I actually have two vocabulary words. Sparta is known as the warrior culture, and Spartan is a word that means simple and austere and resolute. It's very like a super sturdy, very simple desk. It's Spartan. There's no frills. It's simple. It's utilitarian, and you could fucking slap a whole deer on top of it, and it wouldn't like break, right? That would be an example of something that is Spartan. So... They're known as being hyper tough and super warlike. 300 goes into this whole process in which the children are raised. They are sent out into the wilderness so they can learn to survive on their own. And, you know, they're drilled in weapons over and over and over again until they're the most perfect warriors possible. In antiquity, Sparta was called Lacedaemon or Lacedaemon. I prefer the more Greek pronunciation, Lacedaemon, but Sparta is the name of the main settlement in Lacedaemon, and Laconia is the name of the region, and that's how we get the word laconic, and laconic means concise, badass, effective. It's very like James Bond one-liner. For example, the Persians in 300, the Persians warned the Spartans that they had such a massive army that their arrows would blot out the sun, and the Spartans replied, then we'll fight in the shade. Uh, love it like you know just very like simple deadpan Mm -hmm. like fuck Mm -hmm. you yeah um so going back to when philip was unifying greece he sent a warning to sparta he said something to the effect of you best submit to me because if i bring my army in i will murder ransack enslave you and the spartans answered if (laughs) they're like fucking try me brah I really do just feel like they're those assholes who are at every bar who are like, did you look at me? Did you mm-hmm. did you just yeah. look at me? Yeah. Let's fight. Yeah. And you're just like, dude, I just wanted to ask you to like pass a coaster. And they're <laughs> like, no, you want to fight. Like, that's well, and they're also very like, if someone else is being hostile to them, then they have like a you know three word phrase that'll just undercut them. Yeah. You know, the cultural understanding of Sparta is that they are these people who talk in one liners that they're the most like tough warlike people in the history of the world and they're not afraid of death they're, they'll never surrender they live and breathe war it's very captain america right it's very super soldier in the movie 300 the thing that you see is the battle of thermopylae it's in 480 bce 300 spartan elites go on a suicide mission to hold back the persians but then they get betrayed and they all die heroically so it's basically like the ancient greek alamo it's 
Like, one of the most racist movies that I can think of, the Persians are literally inhuman. Like, they're deformed. There's one guy at one point who his face looks like a pig and he has no hands. They've removed his hands and put blades on and he just uses the blades to cut people's heads off. Like, it's just ridiculous. But, you know, the battle... It's like a bad slasher movie. Right? It's just dumb. but he was so hot when he did it. (laughs) Well, and, like, King Xerxes is this, like, super gay, but also very repressive person. He, like, makes his subjects come down and bow to make stairs so that he can walk down their backs. But he also is, like, having these orgies that are dark and disgusting, and he has all this jewelry, and he's just, like, super faggy in general. Like, he's very queer-coded in a way that's incredibly homophobic. Mm -hmm. And, like, that is another, like, very odd problem that they have. And the Battle of Thermopylae is weird because the Greeks super lose, right? It's just like the Alamo. They all died because they lost the battle. The Greeks kind of think of it as a moral victory because the good Greeks take a stand against the bad Persians. But they they kind of seize on that narrative and they turn it into propaganda. And they even do that in the ancient world. It turns out that that propaganda has turned Sparta into a particularly like warlike, epic, elite, tough guy nation. And it turns out that's not really true. There's a bunch of new research in like the last 10 years, like very recent for academia. And the new research seems to think that they weren't like the epic super soldier state. They were just like a very powerful Greek city state with like a reasonably successful military, kind of like Athens. They they weren't a super soldier state. They were just the USSR to Athens's US. They were just different. And it's not that they were wimps. It's not that they were nothing. They just weren't super soldiers. Nope. They're wrong. <laughs> this, is, this is based on... So there are a lot of contemporaneous sources of when Sparta would have been like epic, right? And there are, there are basically no contemporaneous sources that explain these kinds of processes. And in the past, it's kind of been understood that like Spartans are pretty secretive about their government and their society, which seems to be true, but like, it seems really weird, right? That they lose battles kind of all the time because it turns out their innovations were that they had a really well-organized rank system and they would march in formations so that they could advance and like a control, they would walk toward the enemy, which was a really, really crazy thing when everyone else is used to running and screaming when you see people walking toward you and they're like all holding their shields together it feels like you're being attacked by a series of terminators and so that scared the fuck out of people rightfully so i mean right and that that made them really good at like pitch battles on like flat terrain but whenever they weren't fighting on flat terrain which was pretty frequently they got the shit beaten out of them and they also had just like garbage cavalry apparently xenophon is like they had they had like no horse capabilities at all they had to get mercenaries to handle it so like it doesn't make sense that they were super soldiers if they suck at non-pitch battles and anything with cavalry right fair like if you look at the battle of thermopylae which is the movie 300 it was never supposed to be a suicide mission the 300 spartans were at the head of a 7000 greek army And they thought that they would be able to hold off the Persians, and they lost. (laughs) Like, it wasn't nearly as epic as people think. It doesn't seem that they had this super hyper-masculine culture that uh, people kind of ascribed to them. 
And then they got the shit beaten out of them. But that was because Greece didn't show up, right? I think in the movie, some of the Greeks, yeah, go home afraid. And then they get betrayed by that um, guy with the hunchback who probably did not exist. Yeah, I thought the whole point was is that they were supposed to go in there and then like Greece was supposed to show up and Greece is like, so that dude over there, he looks kind of like he has his shit together and that we're probably going to lose this one. So we're going to hold back and get our shit together. But you guys have already started running. So like, keep running. Let's see what happens with that. But we're going to go figure our shit out. Like, they were just expendable to Greece. Yeah, that's not how it happened at all. (laughs) And actually, apparently, the Thebans were the ones who were like, we shouldn't retreat, we should stay and fight it out. The Spartans weren't the ones to say that. So the Persians obviously win that battle. They come through, they attack Athens. It's apparently super sad. They totally sack Athens. But so they use the sacrifice of the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae as propaganda to be like, these Spartans were so noble and they laid down their lives. And then that propaganda kind of keeps snowballing through the ages Mm -hmm. all of the stuff about the like hyper warrior culture the like eat sleep and breathe battles all of that stuff is from like the roman period like hundreds of years later and during those days people were kind of concerned that rome wasn't manly enough so they were kind of mapping some of the manliness onto sparta with the understanding that sparta was a military superpower because of the propaganda from the battle of thermopylae Interesting. So they basically just were like, we need some man meat. Yeah, exactly. And this is like a thing that continues still. Uh, We can post this article that I found and a YouTube video, actually, which explains it pretty, pretty well, too. It's kind of long. It's 20 minutes. But there is a lot of kind of retrospective, like, we should be manly, we should be more like the Spartans. And that still is happening now. Like the American right wing thinks of the Spartans as these most epic, most manly people. One of the kind of laconic lines is when the Persians told the Spartans to lay down their arms, the Spartans answered, molon labe, which means come and take them. Which is like a great laconic line, but now that's a Second Amendment rallying cry, come and take them. Like, you can't take my guns away from me. I'm a, I'm a tough guy Spartan with a hyper-militaristic mindset, My guns are an intrinsic part of my warrior identity, so you can't take my guns away from me. That's what that means. It also plays into, like, the kind of Western civilization thing, you know, like the the idea that the Greeks are European, that Europeans are Western culture, eventually that's Christianity. The Persians are Eastern culture, eventually that's Islam. It's Christianity versus Islam. It's West versus East. It's this, like, major kind of struggle And it's the kind of thing where when people start to emphasize that, it's kind of like every time a white guy says civilization unironically, you need to like take a step back and be like, are you a fucking racist? Because usually when white guys say civilization, they're fucking racists. As someone who loves to talk about civilizations, I acknowledge that is a huge red flag. And I hope that my language and the ideas that I articulate prove that I'm not a racist or at least trying not to be a racist but like that is a red flag and we need to acknowledge that that is a red flag (laughs) red flag noted (laughs) yes and you know like i found on this youtube video that we can post i found one of the comments is this like random person bringing up how jews are jealous of greeks and that jewish culture is inferior to greek culture and they always try to act like they're as good as the greeks when they're not and i'm like 
No one was talking about Jews, you fucking Nazi. Like, yeah. why? But but Nazis loved the Spartan myth. This idea that the Spartans were hyper-masculine, perfect warriors who, you know, blah, 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 blah. They also... The Spartans enslaved a bunch of people. This actually does seem to be true, that the Spartans enslaved a group called the Helots, and the Helots were beneath the Spartan citizens. So the Spartan citizens are small and elite. They fight, and then when they're not fighting, they just like hang out and they're aristocrats. That seems to be true. And then they have these you know, people who support their society, and the Nazis really liked the idea that the Helots were racially inferior, that they supported this oligarchy, and that the Spartans were hyper-nationalistic, ethnically pure, militaristic society. And so that's actually part of the reason why the Spartan myth has kind of persisted into the modern day is that after World War II, people felt like if you talked about Spartans, you were kind of espousing Nazi ideology because the Nazis loved the Spartans so much. So I didn't know that. Yeah. Hmm. And that really pops up to apparently the communists believed or the communists liked to talk about Sparta as an example of communism too, because the upper classes were so equal compared to other, other Greek city states. I've heard that. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. apparently Sparta was less known for their military and much more known for how stable their government was because Athens was a democracy. And as a democracy, it was a clusterfuck all the time. There were always a million people screaming for various things and people manipulating people and demagogues. And it was always just kind of a train wreck. But Sparta, Sparta was always like pretty solid. They were doing their, doing their thing with their oligarchy and all of their slaves. So, and eventually because they have such a tight oligarchy, they have a battle where so many people are killed that they can't really keep the oligarchy because so many of the higher ups have died. (laughs) And that's kind of part of the decline. But yeah, so that's our bonus segment this time is that the movie 300 is horribly racist and Sparta is not as as militaristic as, as people think. And that is Sparta. That is Sparta. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, like a lot of the history of Sparta that we have is very true. It's just the hyper militaristic cult stuff that yeah. doesn't seem to be true. Yeah. Anyway, always question everything. Because like when I was reading the Iliad in college, I was like, this dude's from Sparta. How come he isn't just like going Hulk on everyone and super soldiering them all to death? Why aren't the Spartans the front of the line and the only ones who are kicking ass? Because they weren't actually like that. It seems to be the new kind of thought in the academia. Yes. I think honestly, if anything comes from anything of this, it's that oh, we want our listeners to question everything. Yeah, question everything. Because Lord knows that's the only reason we started this is because I was like, wait, what the fuck is everyone talking about? Okay. So yeah, that's that's our episode. Awesome possum. Cool beans. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time with that Abraham shit that I was just promising. It's going to be a good one. Good night, everyone. Have a wonderful time in life, and we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.